I'm your host, Jesse Single. Uh, you can find my stuff at jessesingle.substack.com and blockedandreported.org. Uh, we just had a new episode of the podcast go up today on a uh, just some good stuff. You should check it out. It'll be free for everyone on Monday. Um, today, we'll mostly just talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about a column I had in the New York Times this week on diversity trainings. Um, it's always cool to get something. I feel a little bit in a weird way conflicted. I talked about this on the podcast today. It's obviously always cool to get something in the Times. You like get you're not going to find any place where more people are going to read it probably just because of the size of their platform. Also had really good editing and uh, fact checking. Um, there is still this part of me, as I pointed out, where it's like the thing I'm talking about, about DEI interventions lacking evidence has been a pretty well-known problem for a very long time. So it there, you can sort of see in real time as like, oh, now that the Times has said so, even though it's not the Times, it's just someone writing for the Times, the problem is suddenly taken more seriously. Um, so that's part of the reason like even the most successful substackers will never sort of supplant the Times. The Times and a few other publications just have this outsized importance in the sort of elite public imagination. And, you know, I could have written the same um, – column for a different outlet and it wouldn't have had the same impact, but uh, I appreciated them letting me write it. So um, I have some more thoughts on that, but the queue's already filling up. So I'll start with Mickey. Mickey, how's it going? See, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Great. Um, yeah. My, my, I actually just had a sort of a more of a curiosity question about you in this context, because uh I know you uh, did that article. I actually haven't read it yet, but I did see um, something you posted the other day that was just some some guy that was just like, you know, basically just being like, this transphobe has written an article about like, you know, and just, just you know, being being very dickish. Yeah. And something I've just always wondered is like, why, why are you like this like boogeyman for – like, I, I don't know. I've been, like, following you for a long time, and just – you've just always seemed just very, like, nice and normal and, like, measured and, like – and there are plenty of people out there, like, journal, you know, journalists or opinion people or whatever who are, you know, like, calling everyone a groomer and, like, yeah. are way more militant and, like, actually on the right and stuff like that. But, like, do you have any sense of, like, why people, like – think that like i don't know like sometimes i just really don't get like where this like people are like yeah he's the worst one i don't know if that's like a like a um annoying or like rude no i mean it's um i just yeah, genuinely I, don't get it yeah i mean i obviously don't either um I, it, it's like online dynamics are weird and and certain people just become boogeymen and then you can sort of see other people being very invested in them being boogeymen like i was i try not to engage but i was fighting with some random idiot on twitter and it's just like it's so important to him that i be a really bad guy and i um don't quite understand it like psychologically but i, I think a lot of people who yeah. spend too much on yeah. time online like it's like this pro wrestling type thing where there's like villain, there's heels, there's good guys. It gets very cartoonish and it becomes very hard to accept that probably most people are neither heroes nor villains. There's just a lot of like weird worship dynamics going on. So I don't know if that's much of a answer, but that's sort of all I got. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It still doesn't. I mean, your answer makes sense, but the whole situation still. It's extremely doesn't. weird. I would Maybe not have expected. Just... Yeah. Yeah, I'll just say this and I'll leave. Maybe it's just the kind of thing that, like, maybe people can't believe that, like, somebody that, like, is a mainstream journalist and, you know, by all accounts is an actual liberal. Maybe they just, like, can't process that in their head. It's like, he has to be the worst on some level. I don't know. It's I just think it's kind of wild. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate the call. Yeah, my experience, of course, has been that it is, in fact, quite wild. But, um I don't know. I, I, I stand by my work and some people do come at me with like reasonable critiques and I try to uh, listen to them and I need to, need to do a better job ignoring the crazy people. But thank you for the call. Yeah, stuff. yeah man. Have a good one. Conky Dong. How's it going? Hey, Jesse. Conky. Can you hear me all right? I can. Okay. Uh, first thing, it's been over a year, but I still am mad that uh, last year you bandwagoned onto the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> right before they lost to Kansas City, so yeah. if you you want to bandwagon onto a different team this year, uh, I won't won't blame you. Um, you know, wait. So you're mad from the perspective of you're a Bills fan, or what? Yes, I'm a Bills fan, and I I noticed very soon after you bandwagoned, <laughs> they lost. They lost. So yeah, there's a lot of other good teams this year: Kansas City, the Bengals, maybe. Think about rooting for them, but okay. yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a Bills fan, and I just noticed that those two two things aligned last year, and was like, oh, of course. <laughs> I hereby renounce the Bills. Then, <laughs> um, more seriously, uh, I had a question. I think this was you did an article on it a while back about the um, that study that said like you know, top surgery for young people was um, good. It showed a lot of positive improvements, but then you sort of looked through article itself and noticed that there was they, they seem to have made this chest dysphoria rubric yeah and so you know they they had um the patients take the survey before and after and you know by their own rubric it showed that the surgery really helped i guess my question is how how big of a thing is that in a lot of mental health um studies it, it seems weird that some studies would sort of make their own rubric and then do their own experiment in the same paper and then, you know, sort of say that, you know, this, this is the result. Um, is, is that common? Is there ways to say, like, this is a good rubric or is it just sort of one of those issues that's starting to, to plague a lot of, uh, you know, mental health studies? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know how common it is. Basically, um if you use a psychological instrument, you're supposed to get it validated. And and validation is a whole other thing that is itself complicated. And I definitely could not tell you like the deep statistical underpinnings of, of validating a um instrument. But yeah, there's a there's supposed to be a way to um you know make sure that an instrument is good and tells you what it's supposed to tell you. So People just don't follow it. So in the case of this this chest dysphoria uh, instrument, it, it really was just like written in a way where if you remove someone's breast, they will quote unquote improve. But one way you would validate a scale like that is showing that it is actually correlated with things like anxiety or depression enough so that you could say if, if your score on this goes down, it's probably benefiting you in other ways. Because until you've shown that, 
all you're showing is that your score has gone down on some arbitrary instrument and we might not care, right? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, it, it's interesting you said that. I actually do some instrument validations and, and research labs. And I guess oh, so that, you know more about this stuff than I do, I'm sure. Not, well, not on the psychological field. I, I, I'm actually pretty, I don't know a lot about like social science studies. I, I find them fascinating. And, and I guess one reason I, I started listening in to you was because of sort of how you've been writing about, you know, these a lot of these like headline grabbing studies, but um, it, it is like a fascinating world to me that I, that I really just don't understand. I, do you know if in, in that case, would, would a rubric sort of be validated on its own? Or are they like, you know, sort of put out there first before doing an actual study with it? Or is it pretty common to, to sort of you would usually, I think they usually publish a study like introducing the new instrument and, and saying what work they've done to validate it so far. Um, to introduce a new one in the course of reporting on data from a clinic that I, I don't know, I can't say how uncommon it, common it is. It just seems to be like a little bit of a trend where research teams in this space that don't have other positive results to report will report on these scales where it's just like unclear whether improvement in that scale matters much. Okay. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for explaining that to me. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, it's kind of uh, a lot to think about in terms of, you know, how, how mental health studies are conducted. So I'm, I appreciate uh, some of your reporting on this. Yeah, and, thank uh, you. Too. Yeah, have a good weekend. You too. Hey, uh, what is up? Jesse, how are you keeping? Good, how are you? Not too bad at all. Not too bad. Uh, I was. I want to talk about your uh, article in the New York Times, but I was just going to touch on uh, what Mickey said there in the first call. He was wondering, like, why do people reserve such hate for you? Uh, like, I would speculate that part of it is because, or a big part of it is because, like, you are on the left and or a liberal, and because they think that, like, if they can immolate you and turn you into a complete pariah, it serves as an example to everyone else not to step over that particular line. Yeah. I think that, like Jonathan Shea kind of touched on that in that article a couple of weeks back uh, when he was talking about the backlash to the New York Times article and he was talking about your Atlantic article. And I think he more or less said like that people were afraid to touch that point topic for a long time after that because they saw what happened to you. So I think that's what, what the reason, like if they do it to people on the right, it only increases their standing in the eyes of like their, their colleagues on the right. Whereas if they do it to someone like you, they're hoping like it'll just serve as a warning to other people on the left, don't don't be like Jesse, don't touch this button, don't touch this topic. Like, Yeah, I think don't be like Jesse is good advice in general, but in this case, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it, you just, I don't know, it, you can, if you're just a critic, uh, you can have a bigger impact criticizing your guy. No one will care if you're the 8 millionth point person to point out that like Ben Shapiro doesn't have the right view on trans stuff. So I think there's something to that theory. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I think that does, that's a part of it anyway, I think. Um, but I just wanted to talk to you about the article you had in the New York Times. I, I only read it once, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought like you kind of said there was two real potential outcomes with it, like either like it's ineffective in its goals, like and a lot some of the data would suggest that, in which case like it's kind of like a, a waste or a multi-billion dollar waste, like this whole industry, or else like it could be counterproductive in its goals, meaning like that some of the uh, groups who uh, are receiving the training may like feel hostile towards it because it paints them as like you know inherently bad or whatever like and you cited like maybe white people as an example of that yeah um, but uh, like were they the kind of two kind of th things you were saying were like how this may be playing out like or was yeah I think those are two two reasons to worry and 
the reason to bring them up is because we don't have evidence in the other direction that these trainings work. And I, I am a big fan of um, Scott Lillianfeld, unfortunately died. He's a great, was a great clinical psychologist who debunked trends in psychology. And in 2007, he had a paper called Psychological uh, Interventions That Cause Harm. And there were these popular interventions that everyone was just running around doing, spending millions of dollars on in some cases that turned out to harm the populations they were supposed to help. So until you've done the legwork to prove that an intervention helps, there's no reason to assume otherwise. Yeah, uh, I think you're definitely right about all that. But I, I have like maybe uh, like no evidence for this at all, but like a more slightly more reactionary take. And it would be like that, uh, like judging as to whether it's successful or not would depend on what you think the aims and the goals of like the the training or so, some of the training movement is anyway. And like I would speculate like this is a bit of a reactionary take, but I would speculate that like some of the goal is to like assist with the institutional capture and business captures and organizational capture by the woke ideology and like by the six what like what you know uh, can be termed successor ideology as well and that like introducing this dei training sets the like framework and the uh, for like the rules of engagement of people in the organization going forward and like that people inevitably fall foul of it in which case they can be like punished and replaced by people who like you know are uh, maybe the preferred group whatever that might be in in, in any given setting but like uh, i'm wondering do you think like that, that there's any anything to that potential uh take on it like i think it's more just like this industry like a lot of industries just has folks who like have strong views on the world and like maybe radical politics but haven't really thought through how to improve the world so like you look at the microaggression stuff where they're trying to teach people not to say things like america is a melting pot yeah, I mean, I guess the part where I agree with you is that it's like it's politicized. They're trying to make political arguments that you shouldn't say America is a melting pot. That's just a political argument. That's not really that doesn't improve the client, the diversity climate. So I don't think there's like a grand scheme here. I just think people can maybe confuse changing people's minds on politics with like actual progress on this stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, as I said, I have no ev evidence for that whatsoever. But I just sometimes view it like I don't think like introducing DEI training in and of itself, like is going to like lead to the an institution turning woke and just being completely captured. But I think in certain cases, it's like a necessary step for it happening. And it kind of just inculcates that climate and culture. And then if you have particular groups or like cohorts within the organization, then they can like use that um, to accuse everyone above them of like microaggressions and like and you know, that they are creating an intolerable climate. They must it does give safe. certain people like uh, weapons to use against their perceived enemies, for sure. Yeah, some of your like blocked reported episodes touched on that as well. I think like the one where I can't I think there was one where there was like a a place where gigs were held and an employee who was like just like always late and like uh, going to be sacked, like accused, you know, the bosses of... Uh, of um you know being racist towards him and the whole thing had to be shut down and the, that other one the coffee yeah, place yeah so you see it happening in, in kind of small scale or on a small scale and in, in, in um you know some of the things you cover but I, i'm wondering does it happen kind of an, on a larger scale as well like in, in industries but anyway yeah it was a good article and uh yeah cheers thanks i appreciate it next up we got neil what is up neil hey jesse so i also wanted to ask about the article so one of the um biggest criticisms I saw that I agreed with was that your article didn't mention like how this is like a liability thing, right? So like if an employee says, oh, this is a sexist, racist workplace, 
like Sue's, then if the employers actually did the DEI training, they can go, well, see, we, we actually did this training. And that's like more convincing in like a court case than just saying, well, we had a policy to not be sexist and racist. And so I was wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah. Um, I might have mentioned that in like, so that I just, my first draft of this was like 2000 words and a huge amount of stuff got cut, um, including. Mm-hmm. It. So I can't remember if I mentioned it. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true that, sorry, but excuse me. It's definitely true that there's one of the reason firms do DEI trainings is to use that sort of as evidence if there's legal problems. I don't know if that works. I'm actually not familiar with any stories where that's come up. In this case, some of the trainings I cited have themselves sparked lawsuits because they are sort of arguably discriminatory. So, um, yeah, I just sort of see that like in this case as like a a side note. but and I'm not sure how relevant it is to these trainings, which again could cause legal issues if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. And then I saw one of the uh, like responses was like, "Oh, there is, there is data that the from the one guy who was like crazy and blocking everyone that there, very, there is very one crazy. study was like of of like uh, proctors who were like are better at teaching DEI because of the uh, the training." It was like a but then but then well, he also an example of like a study with where like the external like it's not studying something we care about. It was like a study. Yeah, yeah. After they had the training, they felt more positively about the training or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but then he also like uh, had other ones, and I was wondering if you looked at the other ones. I wasn't sure because he blocked me, so I couldn't know. No, I, I'm relying on um, like Frank Dobbin and Alexander Kalev yeah. and Betsy Levy Pollock. Those are the like the experts who have really looked through the literature. So mm-hmm. uh, this is going to sound very elitist, but if like I read Betsy Pollock and her colleagues like comprehensive review in um. I think it was annual review of psychology where they just did this massive search of the literature. So mm-hmm. I'm going to trust their findings more than a random person throwing studies at me on Twitter, to be honest. Okay. And then, so the other thing I wanted to ask about um, was, so you're apparently somehow part of the camp that's like, it's bad to ask your friends if you need help moving. Like this is no, like no, no, no. My like, argument is if you are, I'm significantly older than you. Uh, if you're a certain age and you have the resources to hire a mover, mover, it is far preferable to spend $500 on a mover than to take your friend's whole day and potentially fuck up their back. That's my argument. Okay. So I, I still, I, I still totally disagree. I think, I think there's no, like, well, that's cause you're a monster. No, 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 no. But, but there's no impetus to, to hire movers, especially because I don't know, I guess having dealt with it personally, movers, like unless you're like so rich, you can ensure that they don't steal stuff, but they like, there's always a serious risk of theft. And especially if you're richer than the more like stuff you have that can be stolen, I think it's just a really like serious problem. And I just, I don't know. I just, I have a family friend who was recently robbed by her movers and the police just don't care. And she like serious, she's like robbed uh, by, that's family. horrible. She's, I'm sorry about yeah. that. And, so, that's so not it's like, common. and she like is, I know, I think it's pretty common, like just from talking to people and like, my dad was like talking to all these people like, yeah, it's just a really common thing. So I think given that risk, I think it's like completely justifiable to, to ask your friends and other people you trust to, and obviously maybe you pay them with like pizza or something, or like maybe you even pay them. But I think, I think it is reasonable to ask your friends for help. Well, you should definitely at least buy them pizza. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's reasonable. I just also think there's like reputable moving companies that, and this is one of those things where my view has changed completely. Like over the last 10 years, when I was younger, I, I would have thought it was ridiculous to hire a moving company. Um, but yeah. I don't know, you get older and if you're lucky, you have the resources to do stuff like that. And it's just like move it, helping a friend move sucks. I'll always do it. And I did help a friend move a couple of years ago, but, um, mm-hmm. it's been a while, but, um, anyway, that's my view. Sounds like you have a more nuanced take than, than expressed on time. I am nothing <laughs> if not nuanced as you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank okay. you for the call though. 
Moving is a surprisingly uh, touchy subject. It's uh, Russell Hogg. What's up? Russell, you got to um, unmute your mic if you're able to. There we go. Am I, am I on now? You are on. How's it going? Uh, it's going very well. Thank you. I'm just processing the idea of your movers making off with your armchair. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, something has gone seriously wrong if that happens yeah and and then just just a random thought for the previous person talking did i just lose russell can other folks still hear him russell i think i lost you that you want hey russell we're having major connection issues um i'm gonna go to the next call if you get back in the queue i'll bump you to the front if you can get a better connection but i just you're cutting out like crazy pongo two what's up uh hey jesse Uh, hey i guess sort of related to what the second caller said like he was mentioning about like that mastectomy study that you dissected and um yeah it it had a lot of similar problems to like the original dutch survey like the original dutch studies as i understand it where they basically like did like in the Dutch case, they didn't quite invent their own scale, but they used scales in very questionable ways. And that was really the only finding that they could show to show that like puberty blockers were effective. Yeah. They, they flipped. Yeah. It's a, if you listen to the gender wider lens podcast where they interviewed the Dutch clinicians, they, they, they did screw up the GD thing to be fair. If you're a, a responsible researcher and you're not going to put a kid on puberty blockers or hormones, if they have very bad mental health, that will definitionally only lead you with kids who have leave you with kids who have pretty good mental health. So it's going to be hard to have studies showing improvement when the kids were already pretty good, right? Okay, but yeah. So I guess my question would be, what would be the piece of evidence that would be necessary for you to decide that um, either? Medic, like uh, chemically or uh, surgically sterilizing children is not an appropriate treatment for gender dysphoria. Um, I've gotten significantly more skeptical of it. Uh, it remains the case that we have these cohorts of kids that like aren't doing badly, but they tend to be pretty highly pre-screened. I- I'm definitely getting more skeptical. Uh, I-, I think this is like a really serious treatment that a lot of people have taken pretty lightly. Uh, I don't know what evidence. Um, if, if so, like, they keep producing – I need to – so in, like, the latest New England Journal of Medicine study, I need to know more about how the kids who weren't doing well went because they sort of obscured that in the write-up. But, but okay. So, but to your knowledge, is there any – is there any evidence that – is there any evidence that gives, like, like any – that gives a strong signal that these treatments actually accomplish anything as opposed to not making things worse? Um. Strong evidence now. No. So if we're, it seems as though we've gotten into a circumstance where the null hypothesis is that uh, doing these radical surgical and uh, chemical interventions is the appropriate way to do it. And we, that's for what some jumped out at me about the, this. Not to talk over you, but that jumped out at me about the New England Journal of Medicine study because, like, they found no result for the male to female patients. They didn't even linger for a second on the possibility of, like, Maybe it just doesn't work. They were like, "No, maybe you just have to do it longer, and then it'll work." But I agree with you that it exactly. Like I, I could, I could totally understand where you're coming from. I sort of work this room. I, I, I think you can probably tell that I've come to the conclusion that there is no reason to do any of this. Yeah. Um. And but I don't it, think we know just, enough to know that for sure. Like I, so my my thing has always been. I think there's a risk that um, there's kids who will study suffer badly from gender dysphoria for a very long time who didn't need to, and I don't want that. 
Yeah, there, there may be, but in the in the setting where we have a treat, we have we have a quote unquote treatment that, as you said, has no real evidence that it improves any outcomes. Has has known has known very what we would consider in any other treatment very severe uh, bad outcomes that are not even really risks, basically guarantees. Like you, like if you if you go through the full course of like treatment with puberty blockers and hormones. You will be sterilized. That's not a risk. That's the outcome. That's the intended outcome of the treatments in some ways. Um, so, in a case where we have basic, like as as you said, no or at least no good evidence for any benefit of it, the best evidence that people cite is showing that it doesn't make these outcomes that we're supposedly trying to improve worse. And we know that it has a guaranteed negative outcome. At what point do at what is, is do you really see no ethical problem there with continuing to use it in that circumstance? Well, I think I mean I, be, I frankly think we haven't run the studies that would show whether or not it really helps kids because all these studies okay. have like these selection issues. Okay, but so if if I, if I was to so like if if the if the proposed treatment was cutting off somebody's leg in order to do that, and we had these very poor, very poorly done studies which showed that there wasn't a, pot, a negative impact on kids' mental health, but nothing really else, would we then be in a circumstance where it's like, okay, well, we can't say for sure that cutting off this person's leg isn't helping something, so we should continue doing it until we have the studies, which we all know that nobody's gonna do because all the institutions are captured. Uh, I'm with you. I think there's serious concerns here. I'm just, um, you know, I, I think, I'm worried. I, I just can't get behind like banning these studies or, or coming out completely against them. I, I hope well, like ban, the, ban, the team so, that. Sorry, I, I'm, oh, not, sorry, I'm, not to, I'm not meaning to push this on endlessly, but like no, studies is one thing. If you want to treat, if you want to treat these as experimental treatments, sure, maybe if you have yeah. people who are really distressed and feel like they need it. I would argue that there's still some ethical questions there, given what we know about what usually happens. So I, be, ha long happens. story short, I sort of think that that is the direction things are heading. And unless there's like data I'm completely missing, I, I think they're pretty close to experimental treatments. And I think in the U.S. context where there's kids who start them after one meeting with, a, with clinicians, that's completely experimental. We have no data on that approach. All right. But are you at the point where you're ready to say that these treatments should only be used experimentally? Um, I don't, I, I, this is sound like a cop out cause it is a little bit, I don't, I don't actually know exactly what that would mean in the U S like what an experimental treatment means, what the, uh, restrictions would be on it. But I'm, I, I'm going to be writing more about that. I need to look into questions like these cause they're totally fair questions. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for all the work you've done on this. Of course. Thank you for calling. It's, uh, I don't mind being pushed on stuff. Uh, we got Alex up next. What's up, Alex? Alex, can you hear me? Uh, I can hear you. Hey. Hey, um, so I've, I've heard that, um, I saw that um, you, you, guys are, uh, uh, you guys are planning to do an episode on blocking and ported over the uh, fracas between uh, Stephen Crowder and The Daily Wire. We uh, might be, yeah. I found it very entertaining, so I'm tempted to. Yeah. I find that um, whole issue really fascinating when it comes to um, political conservatism, um, conservative media, and basically the media ecosystem as a whole, because um, I've watched both accounts from Crowder and The Daily Wire, 
um, very carefully. And I've noticed that Crowder is the guy who's who's really interested in these so-called principles, which is about you know how you know American how conservatives are trying to. If you're like a conservative content creator, you have more challenges um, compared to other content creators when it comes to like the biases um, that is embedded in the platforms that you upload your content for, you create your content for. And I know, I'm I'm curious, uh, and I say this because Crowder is the one saying to those kind of creators, don't sign these contracts because they will treat you like a slave. And when you look, and when you hear from the Daily Wire account, it turns out that it's not really as that and it's, well he was also uh, to, to be clear the contract he referred to as slavery was for i think 15 million dollars a year yeah it, yeah 15 million dollars a year but it's 15 million dollars for four years and if you and if they ever if he ever got um demonetized on say youtube or spotify then it would account uh, then you know he his revenue would also uh, account for that so um, my question is, is that with these principles that he is talking to, and I don't really think they are principles at all. I think it's just digging a hole for his conservative audience to be more angry about. Right. Um, what do you, what do you see, what do you see the situation? Like, how do you see this uh, situation facing within the ecosystem and why do you think it resonates? Because I I've, I've talked to a lot of a lot of conservatives and they were they're quite fascinated about um, how it operates, how Daily Wire operates, how um, conservative outlets operate. Because I, I would like to hear you, you your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, I haven't looked enough into this particular controversy. Like it, you know, it wouldn't shock me if there's some degree of. Um, obviously biased in how social media companies work. I also, I do think the online conservative ecosystem is thriving. I mean, I feel like folks like Dan Bongino, Bongino I was forgetting how to pronounce his name, and like Ben Shapiro dominate um, the most shared Facebook stuff. So they're not exactly languishing in obscurity, right? No, no, of course not. I And, um, and I'm just curious because I'm just curious about what it means to be a conservative content creator, particularly if you're not as big as Shapiro or Crowder. And because um, I've, I've, I've watched this very long video about content creators struggling to um, so far to make a living off of YouTube with some, um, and it's coming from this um, influence, uh, these influencer courses that don't really amount to much. I'll link that in the comments uh, for sure. your um, for your listeners to um, have a look. But it reminds me about you know if you are a conservative content creator or any or a political commentator, you basically have to cater opinions that will be music to your audience's ears. And well, I think that's a uh, risk for any content creator, right? Why do you think it's different for conservative ones? I think it's different for conservative ones because it's um, because you know I have I had friends who 
who have quite who have done this for a living, and they are quite afraid that if they ever criticize another content creator who had to share same opinions, or if they ever come across opinions that their audience don't like, then they would lose their um, share of revenue. Like it sounds I've like contrib- it sounds like cancel culture, sort of, right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like cancel culture. It also sounds like audience capture. So yeah. if if Crowder basically convinces at least some people why um, the Daily Wire is not the best place to work for, and he claims to represent the small working content creator who's trying to make it as big as Steven Crowder, which is the chances are quite slim. Yeah. Then you know it would look bad for the daily for the Daily Wire, even if you know they have all the receipts and all the rece- and all that shows that Crowder looking bad. Yeah, and um, my and what am I? Yeah, yeah. No, I I I I'm just gonna no, um, I'm gonna wrap it up just because I I don't know about the Crowder specific situation, but I think I I don't know I I would have to think more about like whether. Things like audience capture or this sort of like knee jerk cancellation are bigger problems on the right. But um, so yeah, I'm not sure I have a great response for you, but I appreciate the call. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you so oh, much. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, man. Max, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, thanks. Um, I got three things. Um, one, um, I heard from other people, including on this, and then this criticism with the DEI piece. That was basically saying, oh, well, you know, companies use this to protect themselves in, in litigation. It's not clear to me that this actually would have much value in litigation if an individual employee brings a lawsuit and says they're subject to racism in the office yeah, or hostile work environment. Neil brought this up in an earlier call. I, I, how, what's the, um, like, I don't get how it's a criticism of my piece. Is the criticism just that I haven't mentioned, that I didn't mention it? I think so. It's not my criticism. I, th- I don't, I don't okay, see yeah. it as uh, why you're, you should you're questioning the fact of whether these, <clears throat> these would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, just, I just don't see how it's useful in litigation to have these. And I think the real answer to why companies have this is because it's something that's relatively cheap and easy for a company to do to pay a third-party provider to come in to do this stuff. And then you can tell employees that we do this and you don't have, and hopefully you don't get as many complaints from people about not having it. Um, it's, you know, just like a lot yeah, of, so I things, think it's often know. to appease employees themselves, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's just something that's, it's relatively easy and cheap. You pay someone, they come in, they do this thing, they leave. Um, I don't think there's more to it really than that, except there's this pressure that if you don't do it, then, you know, there's, there's something wrong with you. you you're not, I don't know. I really don't know. I also think a lot of times it gets put into place as a, as a, uh, a purported remedy when an issue does arise. So, you know, if someone brings a complaint or something like that, one of the things they'll do is say, okay, we're going to do more training. It's right. like, you see is a constant answer to these things. People raise very serious problems it doesn't have to be related to that but it can be related to any sort of issue and the answer is always oh we're going to do more training then and yeah training is just like an easy lazy way to not actually solve any problem right exactly yep Uh, so anyway yeah so i don't have a question there i just comment 
Um, <laughs> number number two, um, I got blocked on Twitter by that that crazy person because uh, I asked you. You had said to the guy, "What what do you disagree with in the piece?" Which I think is a great way of dealing with these people. And he said something about how you you cited a an anti-trans forum or something. And I naively went back to your piece and looked at every link in the piece. I was trying to figure out what he was talking about. And I responded and said, well, what was it in this piece? I, I didn't find it. And then he cited this thing from Glad, uh, you know, where they catalog your various transgressions. Uh, but the, I was curious, actually, because I'm sure you've answered somewhere all of those criticisms from Glad. But that bullet point specifically about, you know, there was some organization and you wanted to avoid mentioning it, but that's where it was sourced from. I'm sure there's an answer to that, but I didn't know where to find I, it. I have the I'm glad curious. thing up. Where's the, 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 do you know which item? It was it? something about like a, a um, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. It was something like there were people that you cited for like a, a detransitioning piece or something. And it was like an anti-trans website or something, and then it, they say that you didn't want. To... I, I think it was one of the moms, one of the moms I talked to, whose daughter detransitioned or desisted, had written for Fourth Wave. Fourth That's Wave it. Yep. now, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't think Fourth Wave is anti-trans, and if anti, if Fourth Wave was anti-trans. Uh, not every subject of every story is going to have perfect politics. So they, the same argument was made about, it, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there's just another Atlantic article about detransitioners, and it was a good piece. And one of the people mentioned happened to have bad political views, a detransitioner, but they still mm-hmm. detransition, and that's the point. So I, I just think people sometimes reach for straws rather than make substantive arguments, and that, that would be my argument here. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 um, it's sad to see the the glad thing how they put you on some list and they've got this. I find thing it gross. I, actually... I don't. I've, I've like debate. I don't want to waste the time going through and responding to everything because I find it so bad faith. And in many cases, it's stuff I've responded to years before. But maybe if people are going to keep citing it over and over, I should just bite the bullet and respond to it. Yeah, I mean, I think like a like a bullet point response could be useful, and then you can con- can come back to because they are like a respected organization. Yeah, uh, I think, <laughs> and yeah. um, it would be probably good. It, similar to that, you know, the last thing I haven't gotten to, I've, I've stayed away from a lot of the the trans type stuff, um, but particularly like puberty blockers. You know, you hear the constant kind of refrain that these things are reversible. It's not a permanent thing; it just delays puberty, which stretches the uh, imagination a bit. It's hard to believe. Where's like the best place to either in your work or somebody else to actually read for a non-scientist um, to read the the true assessment of what's shown and what's not shown about you know long-term effects of these drugs, or reversibility, and that kind of thing. Um, it's a good question. I don't know if there's like a one-stop shopping answer to that. Uh... It's just let me think about that. I I, I 
I mean, so like the National Health Service like updated its guidance on this, which on this stuff is totally reversible. I'm trying to think if there's any one good article that totally has like laid this all down and here is just that uh, puberty blockers were previously used for precocious puberty. And this is such a different use case that we, we don't, we just don't know what we know about precocious puberty and serious adverse effects. Swedish documentary that you can watch dubbed in English about the Karolinska Medical Center and they had kids who went on blockers and had like, that sums it all up. But um, yeah, that, that's sort of all I got on that. Okay, cool. I mean, I, I, I would just say, I think, you know, one of the things that I like about your work is I always like to look at source documents. So you hear a lot of things all the time about there's this study that but people don't even decide a study. They just say something as a fact and they'll say studies have shown it. And it's very hard to find out what studies they're actually talking about and whether that actually supports what is sort of held as common knowledge. Um, and even then, when you get to the study, there's often problems with the study. It doesn't really show that or whatever it is. Um, and that's what I like about your work. And if there's a central sort of repository to be like, I take it there are not as many studies as are out there. Um, and it's kind of possible to put all this into one place uh, to help sort it out for the layman. Okay, we're going to have to wrap. A, oh, sorry. Hey, you're back. Just uh, if you want to conclude. That's it. You can do now. Nope, that's all. Go ahead. Okay. Thanks, man. Um, guys, we're going to have to conclude with Mark. I feel bad. It's a much bigger crowd than I expected, which I appreciate, but I just um, didn't budget time to take all these questions. But you guys should come to the next one, and I'll take your question then. Mark, what's up? Hey, oh, and I'll get I'll get Russell after Mark because Russell got cut off before. Yeah, I was going to mention Mark. that if you wanted to skip me, but yeah, no, we you already got it. Um, no, just I just wanted to I'll keep this short and simple. Hopefully, it's like a uh, keep it easy. Um, yeah, because um, I'm right. Football started, and we're taking too long. <laughs> um, no, so uh, yeah, just I'm just um, I'm new to your work, so I don't know all the detail stuff. Most of these guys are talking very deep that. Uh, I'm definitely not around in, but, um, no, I've been following your work cause, uh, I built a, uh, self-care anger management app and, um, but I went above the, the whole psychological elements of just, you know, calming sounds and breath work and blah, blah, blah. I went to more of a, um, deeper question approach. And in terms of like a long-term example would be like, um, instead of, you know, hating your job or thinking like, oh, F my job. Susie's man she's killing me at work blah 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 it changes the the thinking to ask things like um you know uh instead of thinking the thoughts of I hate my job you know use those thoughts for like updating your resume or changing yeah, locations more, more uh productive with the, pro, with pro, the correct more proactive thinking right yeah. so um yeah so uh that and um I forgot what my question was in the middle of it and so um, but, uh, yeah, like, again, we, I was going to keep it short, but, um, yeah, no, uh, long story short, I just wanted to, you know, appreciate you doing this, um, again. And, uh, I was, I was, I was going to reach out to you and of course no, there's no ignore it if it doesn't make any interest or anything, of course. But, um, cause I, cause I'm not like a psychology major or anything like that, but yeah. I do love it. And, um, and since I am going into a very mental health field, um, especially when it's anger, like my whole, my whole long-term goal with, with anger is to just create open-minded ways to accept questions for self-growth, regardless of anyone's beliefs or values. Yeah. 
Um, just send me some info on what you're working on. I'll, I'll definitely read it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so last question: who, who's your who's your Super Bowl team this year? Um, well, I was already chided because someone thinks I jinxed his Bills last time. Um, ah. I, um, I don't know. I haven't followed it closely enough this year. I do really want the Bills to win. I guess I'm jinxing them again, but I could sort of see like three different teams winning. I could see the Giants just staying hot. Um, if I had to pick one, I guess you'd have to pick Kansas City gun to head, but I, I really like the Bills to win. Who do you yeah, got? they deserve they deserve one. <laughs> All right, Jess, take care, man. Have a good Thanks one. Much. All right, Russell will be the last call. Russell, sorry about before. There we go. Um, that was my fault before. No, I was just going to say I've been reading your book, The Quick Fix, and enjoying it a lot. So thank, thank you very you. much. And um, actually, I haven't finished it yet because you referred to Will Store's book, Selfie. So I got that from Amazon, and now I've been reading that. And it's a very that good just, book. It is a very good book, as is his book status, whatever it was. Um, although I found the status book, it almost seemed to explain too much. And I thought when it explains that much, maybe it explains nothing. But but I really like him. And and I like Storr's work. And he reminded me a bit of John Ronson. Yeah. And, and I guess I was interested in your book and their books and where you sort of see yourself. I mean, do you see your book... And their and their books as sort of part of the same genre, and because the difference I noticed was that with with Store in selfie at least, and with John Ronson, they tend to make themselves characters in the story. Yeah. And um, no, I mean I would I would I'd be flattered to be compared to either of them. They're both excellent writers. I, I blurbed uh, status. Um, I think Ronson especially does like way more reporting than I do. I sort of miss reporting, but just for various reasons, I've been pulled in a different direction. Um, and, you know, Store does reporting too, but Ronson, I think of him more as like a really old school reporter and someone who really tries to understand like the human condition and individual human characters. Um, and he's a master at it. So I think he's less interested, not interested. He writes less about, scientific questions uh, than I do. But at this point, Ronson's like done a little bit of everything. He's just sort of a, everyone's jealous of him in journalism. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Other folks I didn't get to Tyler, AA, Simon and Justin, um, feel free to hop on the next call. And if you nudge me in the chat, um, I will bump you to the front because didn't mean to not get you guys, but I hope everyone has a good rest of your weekend. As always, Russell does sound a little like Sean Connery. Good point. Bob. Um, Oh, sorry. Yeah, nice you do. You're a nice voice. Um, so, yeah, uh, if you like what I'm doing here, tell your friends about it. We had a really good turnout today. Let's try to uh, keep that up. Thanks, everybody. Bye.